This is Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you each month by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. I'm Caitlin Barker, and I'm here with my co-host, Holly Cedarholm. Hi, Caitlin. I'm excited for today's show. Me too. Tell me about it. Today, I spoke with Sarah Alexander, Ryan Dennett, and Caleb Goosen of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. We talked about PFAS contamination of farmland in Maine that included discussing contamination pathways in the state, the impact it's had on farmers, and some first-in-the-nation PFAS legislation. Great. I'm looking forward to listening. As always, archives of previous episodes of Common Ground Radio can be found on weru.org, as well as the WERU app. And now here's Holly Cedarholm speaking with today's guests. Today on Common Ground Radio, we're digging into a topic of significance here in Maine and around the world, PFAS contamination. PER and polyfluorical substances are a class of chemicals known as PFAS for short. That's P-F-A-S. These substances are a source of environmental contamination of farmland, food, and water, as we'll hear from today's guests. I'm joined by Sarah Alexander, Executive Director of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, known as MOFCA, Ryan Dunnett, MOFCA's Farmer Programs Director, and Caleb Goosen, Crop Specialist with MOFCA. Welcome to Common Ground Radio. Can you each please introduce yourself and briefly describe the nature of your work in regards to PFAS contamination of farmland? Well, hi, I'm Sarah Alexander. I'm the executive director of MOFCA, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And we've been playing a lot of roles as it comes to PFAS that you're going to hear more about today. Um, But I've really been working both with our farmer programs team and our policy team um, and all of the teams at MOFCA to both educate about and and advocate for actions on addressing and, and dealing with our PFAS contamination here in the state. I'm Ryan Dennett, the Farmer Programs Director, and I have been uh, working with staff in my department to do direct farmer outreach and support. We administer a number of programs in partnership with Maine Farmland Trust, and I'm participating in a number of working groups with service providers from other organizations and state agencies to make sure we're having a coordinated response to support farmers. And I'm Caleb Goosen. I'm MOFCA's crop specialist. I've been working with farmers and gardeners generally, but trying to better understand the PFAS issue for a little over a year now, uh, particularly in regards to farming systems. Great, thank you. I'd like to first orient our listeners to what PFAS are. This group of substances numbers between 5,000 and 9,000 discrete chemicals or even higher, depending on who's counting. They're often referred to as forever chemicals or even more recently, everywhere chemicals. Why are PFAS a concern for environmental and human health? Well, just to start out, you know, I think um, the, the reference to forever chemicals there is that, you know, this class of chemicals really don't break down over time. They don't break down in the environment naturally um, and they don't break down in our, in our ecosystem. So they're, if um, they're in our soil and our water, the animals and plants and humans that are um, exposed to that water or um, crops or other interactions coming from those contaminated spots, 
those PFAS are going to accumulate within the environment and then within us. And they have been linked to health impacts, certain types of cancers, um, low birth weight, kidney and, and liver um, diseases and outcomes. So there are health outcomes that are of concern here with the fact that in humans, they accumulate and it takes a really long time to get them out of our system. And, you know, there's much more research that needs to be done to know what the really long-term impacts of these could be, but that we are exposed to these um, every day in many different ways. In addition to be ca being called forever chemicals, I've also recently heard them referred to as sort of everywhere chemicals because they do show up in most humans um, now. They're in a lot of personal care products. They're in furniture. They're in our disposable coffee cups. They're in carpeting. They're in our rain gear, in our boots. Um, and so we are exposed to these in, in many different ways. And we definitely um, want to be cognizant of that and what the health impacts of that might be. But then specifically when we're talking about high levels of contamination in particular areas related to water or agricultural systems or um, air pollution, you know, those, those are areas that we want to have extra attention and focus on um, to make sure that we're, we're understanding and hopefully mitigating any health outcomes related to those. You mentioned that there's air contamination and water contamination and that PFAS are sort of ubiquitous in a lot of everyday products, but what are some of the ways that PFAS are entering the environment and where are these chemicals coming from? So these are man-made chemicals invented in, you know, first discovered in the thirties and, but really entering use in the fifties, the probably at, and, and just increasing from there. One of the the a, a couple distinctions that I, I try to make is that um, we're talking about PFAS as a class of chemicals, but there are many different individual compounds, and we know not enough about most of them. But the ones that we know best are the ones that have been in use uh, for the longest, and that's usually PFOS and PFOA. And those are two of the original, widely commercially used ones up until about the 2000s when the, there was enough basically uh, research and, and health impact uh, data out there to suggest that we really probably shouldn't be putting these out into the world. And so a lot of chemical companies stopped producing them. A lot of industries stopped using them and formulated to use different compounds, which means that they are still using PFAS in many cases, um, but they are different specific compounds that they may still be using and, and still many are in active use in commerce today. So we kind of get into some really complicated things really quickly. You know, there's this historical legacy of these older compounds and how those may have spread throughout the environment and throughout our, our commerce systems. And then there's the present day current spread of other PFAS compounds. Um, and it, it, it gets tricky to keep kind of tabs on all of it. So speaking generally, there are probably low levels of all manner of different PFAS compounds throughout uh, most of the world, unfortunately, um, in the soil, some water, and in our own homes, in the dust in our homes because of um, fibers that shed from the clothes we wear, upholstery, things like that, carpets. The issue that has 
come to light here in Maine that has really brought a lot of attention is sort of legacy impacts for, of these specific longer chain um, PFAS compounds, the PFOS, the PFOA, that were spread out in sewage sludge um, onto ag lands. Uh, primarily, the dates of concern are primarily in the 80s, the 90s, um, even though some sewage sludge spreading was still going on after that, the levels of those two specific compounds was expected to be lower after that, that time period. Uh, that's not to say that other PFAS compounds were not also still going through that sewage sludge and being spread out to ag lands. So there it gets once again further complicated by just locality. So some folks may be very highly exposed if they were living close to an area that had a, a, a spreading history of high concentration uh, material. Other folks may be very minimally exposed, just the background levels that all of America is exposed to. Um, there are other instances of exposure pathways. People who eat more fast food are probably, there's some relations in, in scientific literature with uh, a correlation there between how much fast food they're eating and how much PFAS compounds show up in their blood, suggesting that sort of the PFAS in the food packaging, that, that grease resistant, water resistant, coating uh, is maybe transferring through food, although it's hard to scientifically say there's a, a direct link. Um, I just want to jump in um, and ask a clarifying question about the PFAS contamination in Maine, which has been garnering a lot of steady media attention over the past several months, is coming from a legacy issue where the PFAS had been in sludge that was spread on farmlands. How did the PFAS get in the sludge that was spread on the farmlands? Sure. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple ways. One is the lower level because the general population does have a low level exposure to PFAS. That means it's passing through our bodies. And even though it takes a while to leave our bodies, it does leave our bodies. And that enters the waste stream through human waste. Um, also, personal care products that people may use in the bathroom, some of them contain PFAS compounds, water resistant makeups, things like that. And those will also go down the drain. So that kind of low level contamination occurs to all sludge. And uh, whether that's septic system sludge or sewer system sludge that gets handled by a municipal wastewater district. Anytime that sludge is then composted, it's constant, it's sort of respiring away microbial degradation of some of the other organic matter. And that concentrates what's left behind. And that would include PFAS chemicals. Uh, and also PFAS chemicals tend to be very soluble in water. So they could then be leaving that, that waste management system into the water, as well as the solids that are left behind. And those are what were historically spread on farmlands. But the bigger issue seems to have been when there were other wastes also being processed in the same wastewater handling facilities. And the, the best known example, probably the highest profile example, appears to have been from a factory that was applying a PFAS coating to a product and their wastewater was being entering a municipal wastewater uh, treatment and contaminating it heavily. So Governor Mills allocated 30 million for PFAS investigation and cleanup with LD 1600 requiring investigation of all sludge spreading sites in Maine, along with groundwater testing completed by 2025. Can you talk about the investigation and testing happening in the state and the agencies involved? 
Sure. I can share a little bit about that. Um, so yeah, the, really the, the PFAS situation in Maine, I think we have to um, sort of go back a little bit to look at where, where it came from and how this came to our attention. So in 2016, a farm in Arundel, Maine, a dairy farm, through some routine testing that was happening of surrounding wells, um, did find levels of PFAS contamination. And that kicked off and triggered you know, some further investigation by the Department of Environmental Protection in Maine to, and, and then the Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry to look at um, both this dairy in particular and try to understand where the contamination was coming from, but to also start to look at retail milk. And there was some initial retail milk testing that was done because um, dairy was of particular concern since this dairy was involved um, to look at what are the levels of you know, concern with PFAS contamination that we need to be expecting or looking for. And in those initial retail milk tests, there were not really widespread levels of PFAS contamination found, um, but there were a couple of additional um, sort of point sources that were indicated that, that warranted further research. So the triggering of kind of those initial farms along with this legislation that came out in 2020-2021 looked at you know requiring the Department of Environmental Protection to um, identify all of the sites in the state that had been licensed to issue uh, sludge or septage um, which is the waste that's coming from septic tanks and in sort of the end of 2021, the Department of Environmental Protection released the results of the initial kind of combing through all of those back records and um, published a map of over 700 sites that indicated where licenses had been issued. Um, and they tiered those sites into uh, multiple tiers based on risk. Um, starting with tier one, which they thought might be the highest risk based on um, how much spreading had happened, the location or source of the septage or sludge that was spread, and how close it was to residential wells and what the likelihood would be that it was contaminating water, groundwater in particular, or, or well water, drinking water supplies. And so the DEP started that testing in the end of 2021, and, and that testing is going to be ongoing. They are going to test, they're required to test all sites that were licensed, and um, they have to have that completed by 2025. And I think as we've um, seen over the last six months, as they're doing that testing, you know, we are finding when you look for it, you find it. <laughs> it is in agricultural fields that were spread. It is in groundwater. Um, there are particularly high areas that had this waste that was coming from more industrial sources around the Fairfield, um, Benton, Unity, Albion areas, and um, at each site where the DEP is testing, when they find contamination, it creates um, kind of a web of additional testing that needs to happen in the area with residential wells, um, with other fields or farm fields, um, some groundwater testing is happening. And so there's, there's a lot that's happening currently with testing to really investigate and understand the extent of the problem and then have a solution for how to address that. 
One of the things that's happening as a result of the testing and this map that was released by the Environmental and Groundwater Analysis Database showing the septage and sludge sites is that many farmers in the state have been taking it upon themselves to test for PFAS in well water and in soil and in crop products and other products, livestock products, even if they are not categorized as the tier one or high risk site. Why are these farmers testing and what has the impact been on farms with high levels of PFAS found through testing? So farms who are electing to do their own testing are responding to uh, perhaps, you know, wanting to know the history of their farm and finding reason to test uh, because there has been spreading on the farm. There certainly seems to be some consumer demand for testing. I guess I just want to use this opportunity to put some caution out there that for consumers, um, if you see a farm listed on the septage and sludge map, that means that a license was held for or near that farm, it does not mean that sludge was necessarily ever applied there. It's, it's really important in this time for farms to look into their history and uh, to talk to the producer of their inputs, should they be purchasing straw mulch or hay or compost onto their farm to better understand those inputs. But I, I don't necessarily think that testing all products guarantees that a product is safe or like it really gives you the information that you need because it's really a snapshot of a period in time. Um, and so the best thing people can do is to, to understand the history of their field and their inputs and test if it's warranted because we, we are seeing that there's just a huge backup for testing that's really important for high-risk farms to do and that the ability to say that a, a test came back non-detect is really important for those high-risk farms, but again, is, is a snapshot in time um, for an ecosystem. So it's, it's a big ask of farms to request that they are repeatedly testing because these, these tests are so expensive and, and take so, so much time to process. It's my understanding that there aren't necessarily thresholds for all of the the testing results. And um, so when farmers are testing for, you know, well water or for hay, if they're importing that to feed their cows, there there might not be thresholds existing for all of the things that they're testing for in terms of you mentioned non-detect and then what a high PFAS test might look like. So how are farmers and others navigating the situation without thresholds and what thresholds are in place? There are thresholds for drinking water, milk, and beef. Uh, I believe the state is next working on producing thresholds for pork and leafy greens. There's one other, I don't know if Caleb or Sarah, if you remember what it is. Potatoes. Uh, potatoes, thank you. They have established some like uptake indicators so that if you're testing soil or hay, uh, you can then predict the impact that might be had on milk. I, I think the state, CDC, uh, Department of Agriculture, and DEP have been very helpful to farmers in providing context to their results, as have folks at Cooperative Extension, Caleb here at MOFCA, and uh, Northern Tilth is a laboratory that a lot of farms have been using to help 
provide context and digest those results and make business decisions with that information. I, I would add in though that it, it's still pretty early days in terms of general understanding. Um, much more research is going to be focusing in this area for a while, most likely. Every time we, we think we start to know a little bit about how PFAS is moving through soils and into plants and, and further into animals, it seems like we, we find more questions. So um, we're getting a better understanding all the time, but there's still a lot to be learned. So it is a tricky spot for farmers to be in, uh, for sure. So speaking of the tricky spot that farmers are in, those who have um, experienced the tragedy of coming upon high test results on their farms, um, they're looking at you know health impacts, loss of income, threat to livelihood, and MOFCA in collaboration with um, other partners throughout the state, including Maine Farmland Trust, has worked to offer a number of farmers support programs, ranging from testing cost reimbursement to income replacement to wellness support. Can you describe the farmer programs in place and how the support has been received by impacted producers? Sure. I will say that the, the testing program that we offer actually covers the upfront costs we will reimburse for any farms who paid for their own testing prior to the availability of our program. So prior to March 1st, we'll reimburse your testing pro uh, costs. But otherwise, we ask you to fill out an application. We'll help you develop a sampling plan, and we will cover those costs up front. I think that's been really helpful in giving farmers and consumers confidence. Folks who participate in our program consent to us sharing any high test results that are received with the Department of Agriculture so that they can receive support. And so this program is for commercial farmers. That's anyone that's selling at least $2,000 worth of product. That eligibility is waived if the applicant is an indigenous food or medicine producer. So I think, yeah, we've had, we've had quite a few people participate in that program. It's ongoing. We review applications weekly. And then our income replacement program when a farm has high levels of PFAS and as a result needs to pause or stop selling their product. We've, we've had the opportunity as a nonprofit to be really nimble in working with others to raise a lot of funding and to stand up a program very quickly that we could replace lost funds for those farms. So they send us a prior year business tax form, and we send them a weekly payment until they're able to access the state's own income replacement program, which is sort of in a pilot phase right now, unless they're able to resume sales earlier than that. But that has been a real lifeline for a number of farms. And uh, because the state's own program will have a lengthy application review period, we will continue uh, to run that program to, to fill that gap in income for farmers. And finally, we've partnered with the Farmer and Rancher Stress Assistance Network has a wellness fund that we administer and that provides farmers who need wellness support, broadly speaking, but then also we have specifically prioritized farms who need wellness support, who are dealing with PFAS, they can receive up to a $500 stipend. And so what we mean by wellness support is if you are a farmer or a farm worker who is dealing with stress related to PFAS contamination, 
We'll send you up to $500 that you can use to buy food, pay for childcare, see a medical professional, anything that you need um, to feel supported during this stressful time. And that wellness program, so the, the stipend is up to $500 per person. And I think it's, it's a really important thing to just address the stress and anxiety that comes along with this situation. There's so much uncertainty for farms um, throughout the whole testing process of understanding, you know, both the history of the farm and what farms, you know, what may lie ahead, what changes this is going to mean for them, their family, their business, you know, like you mentioned at the top, right. It's, it's health impacts, but it's also, their entire livelihood and everything that they've potentially built could be at risk here. So that, that farmer wellness piece is really important. You're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio. On today's show, we're discussing PFAS contamination in Maine with a focus on farmland contamination and what's happening in the state. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guests today are Sarah Alexander, Ryan Dennett, and Caleb Goosen of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. I just want, wanted to share a little bit more about the fund, just to share that the need for this was really clearly indicated from working directly with impacted farmers. So MOFCA, Maine Farmland Trust, and the Department of Agriculture, Conservation, and Forestry representatives sat down very early in this year um, as more farms were doing their own testing and finding high test results, um, sat down directly with the impacted farms to understand what the needs were and how we could best support in this moment. So that's where the direct income replacement came from. That's where the farmer wellness and the testing funds came from. But that meeting also really triggered an entire advocacy policy agenda as well um, that I know we're going to talk a little bit more about, but the, the fund itself that was set up, you know, the need for that, there was such a critical outpouring from the community that I want to be sure to highlight, you know, so MAFCA and Maine Farmland Trust did some initial fundraising outreach to some of our foundations here in the state, in the region, and had a support to get the fund seated and started. And then um, I do just want to honor and acknowledge an incredible partnership that we had with Erin French in the Lost Kitchen. The Lost Kitchen is based out of Freedom, Maine. She works directly with a lot of these impacted farms and really wanted to make this issue something that she was able to educate her supporters and followers about. And so she put out the request um, to raise funds for the PFAS Emergency Fund as part of her reservation process this year. And through that process, we were able to raise over a million dollars from over 25,000 individuals. Um, so the fund itself does have, in total, the availability of about $1.3 million that we are able to utilize for these programs and um, just really want to thank and honor and acknowledge everyone who has supported those who has stepped up in this critical moment for our farms and our communities as, as we're all tackling this issue together. That's a really tremendous effort on behalf of, of Maine um, communities. Thanks for sharing about that. Maine, as we talked about a little bit, is at the forefront in terms of setting thresholds for PFAS contamination and implementing some regulatory oversight. So the state's drinking water standard is 20 parts per trillion for six different PFAS, which is among the strictest in the nation. 
for contrast, the federal level is at 70 parts per trillion. Maine also enacted several first-in-the-nation PFAS bills in the recent legislative session. Can we talk about them starting with LD 1911? You know, as I mentioned, our legislative agenda this session was really informed by the impacted farmers and looking at the potential scope of full impact on agricultural lands in Maine. And so I think one of the initial things in what LD 1911 does is prohibit the land application of sludge and um, sludge derived compost. And that's important because we felt like we needed to turn off the tap. Like we're still in the discovery phase of really addressing what are the the full impacts of this PFAS um, contamination from previously applied sludge. It's gonna take years for the DEP to do all the testing of all of the sites that were previously permitted and applied. And as Caleb mentioned, there's so much more research that needs to be done about uptake and plants, you know, how PFAS moves in the soil that we really wanted to emphasize a precautionary approach to how we are further permitting the the spread of PFAS in our environment. So LD 1911 prohibits any further sludge. This is the first in the nation bill that does this. And um, while MAFCA certainly is all about compost and um, certainly cycling nutrients and beneficial reuse, you know, we feel that the concerns with contamination right now are, are too high to really warrant the further spread of this where additional PFAS contamination may be happening. Um, and I'll also just share LD 2019 was a bill that's in the similar vein of that. And that was a bill that phases out roughly 1,600 main registered pesticide products that contain PFAS by 2030. So again, the, the overarching idea here is let's make sure we're not further contaminating our land while we're still understanding the full extent and scope of this issue. And we're spending you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up land that has been contaminated and is, is impacting you know, landowners, farmers, and, and the broader ecosystem here in Maine. Sarah, I think you spoke to this a little bit just now, but how will having these laws on the books change the PFAS landscape in Maine moving forward? So it'll stop sludge spreading, it'll phase out PFAS that might be leaching into pesticides through containers or being manufactured to have PFAS in them. What will it look like moving forward now that these laws are in place? Well, the the sludge will have to be landfilled and you know, just to take a step back, you know, there was significant legislative action in 2021 as well. There was LD 1503, which requires the phase out of all non-essential uses of PFAS by 2030. So that's in consumer products, food packaging, you know, everything. And pesticides would be included in that, but we have, you know, further passed that law around pesticides to give the Board of Pesticides Control the clear authority um, to, to do that phase out before 2030. The drinking water standards were set in 2021. And also the prior to, you know, the sludge bill passing this year, state testing had revealed that 95% of wastewater sludge um, had high PFAS levels previously. So the LD 1911 really just closed the final loophole of the remaining 5% of sludge um, that was still being spread on land. So I think the, the impact, you know, on what, what this is going to look like in Maine 
moving forward is that, you know, hopefully we're going to be seeing a phase out of products. We're going to, you know, certainly not be, not see sludge being spread on land, you know, hopefully proactive approach to, you know, any other PFAS that may be ending up in products, but Caleb, you want to make, you may want to add more about that as well. The ban on all sludge was sort of being entirely precautionary because the state as it had registered was already starting to monitor the amount of PFAS and sludge and they had set some standards where they would cap what, what sludge may or may not have been applied, but now none of it is gonna be applied. Moving forward with that 2030 ban, that's probably gonna have the largest impact. That law is going to charge the main Department of Environmental Protection, main DEP, with collecting information on all products sold in the state that have PFAS intentionally added. And they need to do that relatively soon per the, the writing of that law. But by 2030, gonna be using that information collected to ban the sale of those products within the state. I'm not sure how that's all gonna play out, but I, assuming it, it goes as expected, that would represent a large shift in what is allowed to be sold in the state. There are many products that have PFAS that most folks don't realize. Simply cutting off that tap of flow of products that are, are treated or contain PFAS into the state is going to drastically reduce what's moving through sludge. So, you know, that's one of those in the future, the sludge question may be revisited, but the, the long residency of these compounds, you know, first we have to shut off that tap and that's what that law is doing. But now we have to kind of deal with the legacy and the history of what's already here and what is in our homes and in our bodies. If somebody were to, to think about a PFAS coated rug that they bought in the nineties, that may still be in someone's home right now. And so that's not gonna, to leave the system, so to say, for, for a while. One of the other pieces of legislation that came out of the recent session was LD 1875, which addresses PFAS pollution in state-owned solid waste disposal facilities. I wonder if one of you could talk about that and its significance. So LD 1875, yeah, requires the state to come up with a plan to monitor the leachate coming out of um, the Juniper Ridge landfill and this is really impactful and important, you know, for all of us, um, but in particular the Penobscot Nation, um, which relies on the the river, the Penobscot River, for sustenance and for you know their livelihoods. The concern is that as these PFAS laden products um, or PFAS sludge is going into the landfill, it is going into Juniper Ridge landfill, and wanting to ensure that because the PFAS don't break down, but they move through the system, through waterways, et cetera, that those are not leaching from the landfill and further contaminating our waterways and our environment. So that was a really important piece of legislation, you know, to help address that aspect of it. Um, and certainly also to address the impact on tribal communities. And I also do just want to recognize, you know, the, the Mi'kmaq community has been dealing with contamination at the Loring Air Force Base and looking at some projects for remediation there. But just to, to you know, re-emphasize our commitment to working you know, with tribal communities and really recognizing the undue impact and burden that you know, these contamination sites can have on tribal communities as well, especially when we think about impacts in the broader ecosystem 
on fish, the uh, Wabanaki communities, you know, historically fish is a primary source of sustenance. And now, you know, throughout much of the state, there are fish consumption advisories for a number of chemical reasons, but PFAS is now added to that list. And there are some parts of the state where fish should no longer be eaten because of PFAS contamination. And the state has recently updated the guidance around that. And then wildlife as well. You know, the um, deer in the Fairfield area had a um, do not eat advisory come out last or perhaps two falls ago now. I'm losing track of time, but just looking at the impact that, you know, these same, these same chemicals, because they never break down, they're in our deer, they're in our turkeys, they're in our fish, um, they're in the wildlife populations that many people may be relying on for sustenance, but, you know, and especially our Wabanaki community members, which these are traditional, you know, food systems that are being impacted. PFAS contamination, sadly, is not unique to Maine. The Environmental Working Group recently stated that contamination could be affecting 5% of all the cropland in the United States, which equates to roughly 20 million acres. And sludge spreading programs similar to Maine have been approved in all 50 states. Can the policies adopted in Maine serve as a roadmap for other states? I think it, it already is to an extent. Our state agencies have been working very closely with Michigan's. Um, state agencies where they have found contamination on a beef farm there. And maybe Sarah can speak more to it, but I know that we are seeing growing interest on a federal level from other states as we are leading the way and adopting these new legislation and, and learning more as we investigate the risk here in Maine. Yeah, I was just on a call last week with other consumer and environmental and, and food groups from throughout the nation Michigan, Maryland, North Carolina, New York, Colorado, different groups from around the country that are looking at state legislation. They've been working on these issues for a long time and have been really amazed by how quickly we've been able to move on some of these things in Maine. And I think it really is about, you know, our support for our farming community here that we've been able to move so quickly. And cer certainly any of the impacted communities, I do want to just acknowledge this affects a lot of individual homeowners as well, especially in the Fairfield area whose wells have been contaminated. I think, you know, over 200 families are impacted by this and, and that number is likely growing as more testing continues around some of these other hotspot areas. So we want to support everybody in our community who's dealing with this contamination, but absolutely the legislation that we've passed serves as a model for that. And one other critical piece of legislation that passed was LD 2013, which was included as part of the overall budget that the state passed the supplemental budget this year, which includes $60 million for support for impacted farms, as well as PFAS research and health monitoring of both the farmers and the homeowners who are dealing with contaminated wells and other contamination on their property. So that also, as far as I know, is a first in the nation kind of support package. And what I really have emphasized to, you know, the other states who are reaching out asking for information about how did we do this? Um, I guess what we've found in Maine is if you look for contamination, you are likely to find it because of the prevalence of this. And um, it is critical that we are identifying any levels of high contamination within our systems. Um, I think I've heard Caleb say this, and to paraphrase you, Caleb, you know, 
yes, we are all exposed to this every day. And absolutely, we should be working to get it out of our broader, our broader consumer products, systems, food packaging, personal care products, those types of things. But the, the low level exposure that we have every day should not lull us into any sort of complacency around dealing with any high levels of contamination. So we absolutely have a responsibility, you know, as a state, as communities to understand where high levels of contamination may be and to address those. And if they're related to food products to, to get them and remove them from our food system. So we are eliminating those high levels of exposure. And so in addition to looking for the contamination, any state who's looking at this should be proactive in putting a support system and network in place. Um, the farmer support is critical. No farmer is at fault here. Every farmer who spread uh, sludge was told by the state that it was safe. Um, the permits explicitly said it was safe, that it would have no impact on water or health or creating a nuisance or, you know, the, the farmers were told this was safe. Some farmers were told it was their civic duty to, to um, utilize these nutrient sources. And so um, farmers should not be left holding the bag here. This is this, we need to support our farms and we need to have resources in place for any state that's looking at this, ideally from the federal level, really from a disaster assistance or disaster relief program kind of perspective, but it may take the feds longer to take action on this. And so I encourage other states to, you know, make sure those farmer safety nets are in place as well as they start looking at this. This is Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM 89.9. Today's discussion is focused on PFAS contamination of farmland. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm joined today by Sarah Alexander, Ryan Dennett, and Caleb Goosen of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. MOFCA has been working with farmers impacted by PFAS contamination, and the organization also worked to support PFAS policy in the recent legislative session. I just wanted to reiterate um, some of what Sarah was saying there about farmers not having done this intentionally. You know, their, their, their own drinking wells are also impacted, but also just the, the real need to provide a safety net for the farmers affected. Um, as I speak to extension colleagues in other states about this issue, I have to point out that, you know, the farmers that have taken sort of the courageous steps to be very uh, proactive and take a precautionary approach because they highly value their relationship with their customers and they don't, you know, they, they, they didn't want to be able, they didn't want to know anything about PFAS contamination in their food and still sell it. So they, they had to do what felt right and stop their sales, even though there were no regulatory boundaries that would cause them to. Even here in Maine, where we have, are working to create that safety net, there are still farms, I think, that are scared to look because of not knowing what may happen after they find uh, PFAS contamination, what might come of their livelihood, as well as for many farms, their farm equity, home equity, land equity is a, a large part of their retirement plan. One thing to add on the, the safety net that was put in place just on that equity and land piece is recognizing um, the potential need for farm buyouts. So some farms may be contaminated to the point where it's 
not going to be viable for them to stay on that land or for that land to stay in agricultural production. And so the state is looking at the possibility of buying out that land um, to, to help provide um, the opportunity for that farm or that family to start over uh, somewhere else. You were talking about federal legislation needed and also financial support from federal programming. So what is happening at the federal level regarding PFAS and PFAS contamination of farmland, the food supply and drinking water? The short answer is not enough. The, the longer answer is that the USDA really only has one program in place that um, the PFAS contaminated dairy farms have been able to use, which is the Dairy Indemnity Payment Program which um, allows replacement payments for milk that's adulterated. But beyond that, there are no programs at the USDA that deal with specifically with agricultural contamination of PFAS. We are working to advocate with our you know, state level USDA representatives you know, who all recognize the need for this, as well as our federal representatives, both at the USDA and our congressional delegation to look at, you know, how can the USDA quickly get farmer support programs in place to look at this? And then at the EPA and FDA levels, EPA covers drinking water standards. The 70 parts per trillion is an advisory. It's not a guidance. It's not enforceable. Um, so certainly having an enforceable threshold on drinking water would be helpful, as well as they're looking at um, classifying these two older PFAS, the PFOA and the PFOS as contaminants, which would allow a whole suite of other laws to be um, used to hold corporations accountable and um, require cleanup through the, the CERCLA laws. And then at FDA, there's certainly so much more that needs to be done there, looking at you know, where contamination in the food supply does occur, making sure that they are looking at it the right way um, and looking at, looking at it for the, the correct thresholds. So there's been some discrepancy about the testing that they've done previously um, when they've said they haven't found much. And there's more um, specifics that we really need to look at with FDA and encouraging them to do the right thing. But ultimately they're responsible for the safety of our food supply as a nation and um, setting action thresholds for you know, what, what is a safe level or amount in food, just like Maine is doing for Maine, but we need those at the federal level. It can't just be the state of Maine or each state individually setting action thresholds for food safety across the board. So federal action is needed and, and we'll be involved in advocating at that level, both with our congressional delegation, but working in coalition with many others um, to call for action at those three federal agencies. The CERCLA laws that you're talking about, that's the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, which would allow for cleanup of hazardous waste sites. So a question about the safety of the food supply. So in the absence of some of these comprehensive sort of thresholds on, you know, a state level and even a federal level, how, how do we know that food is safe to eat? What is the contamination looking like for the food that we're currently consuming? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that Maine is looking at the safety of its food with regard to PFAS. And so consumers should 
not be lulled into thinking that buying food from out of state is safer um, when it's not being explored for PFAS contamination. And as we mentioned earlier, milk has been tested at the retail level. And as Caleb mentioned earlier, it's still early days, um, but we are seeing some indication that certain crops um, are not storing PFAS in them, like the grain or fruit of a crop versus something like a leafy green is going to pull up a lot of the PFAS. And so some farms may have the potential based on what and where their contamination is and what they grow for crops. There may be a way forward for them based on what they're able to grow and what their markets are. Caleb, do you have anything to add to that? Um, well, in it, I don't know if it's reassuring to folks or not, but something I think about a lot is that this is the same food we've been eating for the past decades with the same probably similar exposure levels, except now here in Maine, at least, we've already been looking for several years and the worst contaminated farms have been identified and their products have been removed from the food system. So in that regards, our, our Maine food system's already a little bit better. And I think we're in the process now of sort of the less contaminated farms are, are being evaluated and hopefully going to get caught in that investigation in a um, just in terms of identified um, and helped to either mitigate through practices and management decisions, uh, the levels that would actually go through to food to be a safe level, or if need be to, to change things and maybe even stop production in a, a badly contaminated area. Uh, one, one, just to, to complicate things a little, one thing that I do want to highlight that is important about the main approach is that that ban on consumer products that is upcoming um, is regulating PFAS as a broad category. Uh, and that, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, is thousands of compounds. Um, and that really helps prevent the sort of whack-a-mole problem that we often find with regulating chemicals. As we talk about levels in food, and this is gonna be particularly true probably on a federal level, their primary focus is on PFOS and PFOA. Those are the two that are best studied in regards to human health and their impacts on human health. And therefore it's easiest to connect the dots between here are levels in food and therefore potential health impacts. Therefore we can, you know, it's still even knowing all that it's taking a really long time to get those two compounds regulated in the food system. Uh, whereas the main approach is to just sort of stop all PFAS entering the state. And then I'm sure in the future, some of them, there's so many of them, some of them are probably not a health issue, but until that can be proven, they're going to be, um, excluded from sale in Maine, unless it's an absolutely critical use, like a medical need or something like that. So that framing of the issue is, is very important. And I think that's where we'll see lots of differences maybe in how Maine moves forward and how the nation moves forward. I wanted to circle back to talk about farm buyouts and managing cropland for mitigating the PFAS ending up in the consumable food end of a crop. What sort of options are there for remediation that might come before a farm buyout or giving up on a piece of farmable land? 
So it, it's all tricky. I do want to point out, we've been talking about them as forever chemicals. And in the context of agricultural soil, that's a really good name because they're not going to break down the way some other compounds might. Um, but in the context of water and contaminated water, there are ways to filter, to remove, and there are also technologies to actually destroy PFAS in, those, in, in a system like that. However, you can't really easily apply that to acres and acres of farmland, um, certainly not in a um, affordable way. In terms of remediation or mitigation, I'll start with mitigation. The first would be to try to use a crop that is less likely to take up PFAS or accumulate it in high amounts in the part that is used. So one example from our, the dairy farms that have been dealing with this that has been a bit of good news is that um, PFAS tend to accumulate in the green leafy portions of plants where a lot of water moves through those plants. Um, so hay and pasture and corn silage, the vegetative corn silage could have high levels of PFAS on highly contaminated soil, but switching that production to either grain or to uh, corn ears, just harvesting the ears of the corn for the corn grain um, can, drastically reduce the amount of PFAS that is in the feed that would be available to the, that livestock. Similar crop choices can be made on vegetable farms where perhaps if a farm is contaminated enough, it should not be growing spinach, lettuce, things like that, leafy greens, but they are likely to still be able to grow uh, root crops and maybe fruit crops. More, more research is needed, but that is a little promising. The trick there, however, is that for a lot of farms, leafy greens are a, a real profit center. And so it's a, it helps make a farm economically viable. And, and we get into that, that tricky territory of, well, it may be safe in a PFAS way, but is this gonna be economically viable for the farmer to continue farming? So there's lots more questions there. Then to actually talk about remediation of sites, that's a, another topic. I can talk about it right now, or we could um, save it for later. I'd love to just get some final thoughts on where do we go from here and what each of you would like to see happen in terms of PFAS contamination. It could just be a quick recap of something we've already talked about or something we didn't get into yet, but sort of your final thoughts on what is the way forward. Well, I think um, following the roadmap we've already laid out for ourselves as a state, so turning off the tap on further PFAS contamination and continuing to make sure we're following through and investigating all potential sites for agricultural contamination or um, household well contamination to ensure that we are finding it and we are filtering it or mitigating it um, wherever we can to make sure we're limiting our exposure and then ensuring that we're advocating at the federal level too because Maine is leading the way here, but we know that this is a national problem and we need national action. I would just build on that by reiterating um, that I love that folks are listening and educating themselves about PFAS and um, again, hope that they continue to purchase local Maine food um, because it is safe and uh, have conversations with your farmers um, if you'd like to learn more and about their investigation into their own PFAS risk. Um, and Caleb and I are also available to answer folks' questions or concerns. I'll, uh, 
the the one thing I'll add, I agree with with both Sarah and Ryan, but um, I just want to acknowledge that some of us are able to reduce our personal exposure in our households, and uh, it, it's important to maybe um, notice that that privilege that some of us can avoid nonstick pans. We can make our own foods at home that are not exposed to as much packaging. But uh, the reality for a lot of people in the country and around the world is that. Um, you know, we're, we're stuck where we're at. And, and if it's in the packaging, it, it may be hard to avoid. There's, there's only so much that um, some folks can do. And I think that speaks to that broader need for action. Like this really can't be left up to personal choices alone. You know, when we're talking about how we prevent um, health disparities and health issues across the entire globe um, and certainly with, within and across the U.S., you know, it starts with regulation and it starts with um, that more precautionary approach to how we're even allowing these chemicals to enter, you know, our, our personal care products, our ecosystems, our food pathways. And that could be extended out to many things beyond PFAS, um, which we're exposed to through, through other plastics and other things. But just, you know, we really need a more robust um, regulatory framework that really does prioritize human and environmental health um, first, and that has to come from the federal level. It can't only happen through, you know, individual choices that we make each day. Thank you, Sarah, Caleb, and Ryan. For more information about MOFCA's work on PFAS, you can visit their website, www.mofca, that's M-O-F-G-A dot O-R-G. This has been Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as the WERU app. A special thanks to my guests for joining me today and for the incredible work that they are doing to support farmers in the state. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Caitlin Barker, and Claire Boland for editing. Stay tuned for more great programming.